Good morning, everybody. Good to see all of you here. Such a blessing to be gathered together um, and to be in the word of God together, worshiping God in song and in prayer. So uh, thank you all for being here. Thank you for to those of you who are back for uh, the first time in a while. We're just really blessed to have you here and uh, grateful to God that uh, we can all be together and worship God together. And we've got a few, time, few who are here for the first time as well. And I uh, want to welcome you into our gathering and hope that you'll be encouraged by our worship together um, today. So um, we're in the midst of a series of lessons that we've been looking at. Um, in this series of lessons, we're looking at why the church comes together, how the church works together. And uh, this being the third uh, lesson that we've been doing together, I want to talk about how the church is led. Um, so these are what you might call topical lessons where we're kind of surveying what the scriptures teach about how the church ought to conduct themselves together. Um, you might think, well, this is kind of a technical thing. And why would we take time to talk about this in an assembly like this? Um, not the most uh, motivating and inspiring topic, um, but this is important. Um, and I think there are, there are some real important reasons why we need to talk about these things. Um, first of all, I'll just say the story of Israel is littered with cautionary tales of what happens when groups of people choose leaders after their own heart rather than submitting to the pattern that God had given them. Just read through the history of Israel. Read through the stories of the kings and look at what happens when Israel chooses to go their own way, when Israel chooses to do what's right in their own eyes, when Israel chooses to ignore the instructions that God had given them and chose to do things on their own. It did not go well time and time again. And oftentimes, and this is important for our lesson today, oftentimes as the leaders go, so go the people who are following them. Uh, you see that with the Israelites throughout the kings. When the king was evil, oftentimes the people follow the king into all the evil things that they did. So this is important. Um, and we don't have to go far. We don't have to go way back to the Old Testament to see the kind of tremendous damage that has been done to the name of Christ by churches who followed leaders who were unfit for the task. I mean, just read, just watch the news. There's a new one every week, isn't there? Stories about people who are claiming to follow Jesus, but using opportunity and using leadership and using authority to take advantage of people, to abuse people, to use people for their own selfish ends. And so this is important. Um, so I'll just say this too: churches that have given too much authority to some one person or to uh, multiple people who've used that uh, abusively or to uh, to use the church to their own advantage. Um, also, I'll say this: churches that have adopted worldly styles of leadership and worldly uh, patterns of leadership um, and decision making has led to all sorts of harm uh, harm done to the name of Christ. And I'll say this, too. This is also important just because we're not this is not our church. This is God's church. This is Christ's church. And therefore, if it is Christ's church that we are working in, then we need to submit to whatever Christ's pattern is for leadership, whatever Christ's pattern is for how the church ought to function and how the church is led. We need to submit to that pattern to ensure that Christ's church will function as it's designed to function to ensure that Christ's church will fulfill its mission in this world to shine light into darkness and to rescue those who are lost. 
to become like the holy and loving God that we are here to worship together today. That's what all of this is about. Everything that we do together is ultimately about becoming like our holy and loving Father. And if we're going to become like him, if we're going to fulfill our mission, if we're going to shine light into darkness, then we've got to be following his pattern for how to grow up and how to mature as a body of Christ into that one man, which is Christ, which Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter four. So this is important. It's an important topic for us to consider. And uh, and especially this is important because uh, though it is the aim in, in the scriptures of all churches to have pastors who lead those churches, we are not yet at that point. Talk more about that in a moment. So we need to think about what is God's goal for how the church is led? What is the aim for how the church should be led according to the scriptures? And then what do we do as we work towards that goal as a community of believers here together? What do we do in order to work towards and to grow into that goal so that this church is led in a healthy way to become more and more like Christ? So let's with that in mind, let's start in Acts chapter 14. And if you would turn with your turn in your Bibles there in Acts chapter 14. And what I want you to notice in this text in Acts chapter 14 is that after churches were planted by some of the earliest missionaries, Paul and Barnabas, as they're going out preaching the gospel, as these early churches are planted, they plant the churches. They go on to the next town, plant another church. And then check this out in verse 21. After they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. These are all places where churches were already planted. And they strengthened the souls of the disciples, verse 22, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, Having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And this is what I want you to notice. Notice that after the churches were planted, the work of the apostles and the work of these church planters, these missionaries, was not over. They came back and they came back to strengthen the souls of the disciples. They came back to encourage them to continue in the faith. And they came back to appoint elders for them in every church. You see that? Elders for them in every church. And this is what I want to suggest to you. This is God's goal for his church, that there would be elders in every church. Notice another passage where you see that being emphasized. When Paul left Titus, look with me, if you would, at Titus chapter one, Titus chapter one, um, one of those little books right before Hebrews, um, Titus chapter one and in verse five. Listen to what Paul says to Titus. He says, for this reason, I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. And then he goes on to give the qualifications for those elders. Notice the emphasis here. The emphasis is that God designed his church to be led by faithful elders or shepherds. Now, I say shepherds. Pastors is the word we often use. Because in the Bible, while this is not often true in the Christian world today and the way people talk about, um, talk about these words, but in the Bible, the word for pastor and the word for elder and the word for bishop are all used interchangeably. Let me show you two places where we see that. Acts chapter 20 is, is one. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is meeting with the Ephesian elders. It says that in Acts chapter 20 and in verse 17. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. But check this out. Skip down to verse 28. 
And there he says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, the flock. Well, that's a shepherding term. That's a pastoral term. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That's the word bishop there, overseers, um, of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd or to pastor the flock of God among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. You see the importance of the mission here? You're to, you, these elders are called to shepherd the flock of God, to shepherd the church of God. That was their role. That was what they were called to do. So each church was to have elders that would shepherd the flock or take care of the church. And I like that word pastor or shepherd. Because it implies this idea that the role of, uh, of leaders in the church, the role of elders is not they're not like, uh, you know, you're not you don't become qualified to be an elder by being a CEO of a business. You see, the church is not a business. The, the role of an elder is to shepherd the flock that is to care for those who are God's people, to protect them, to provide for them, to guide them. And these are to be people appointed that would do just that. Another passage, by the way, we're not going to go there now, but 1 Peter chapter 5 is another place where the Bible uses those terms, all three terms, pastor or shepherd, overseer or bishop, and the word for elder. They're all used interchangeably. And I say that just to say this. In the Bible, an elder is a pastor, is a bishop. Those are all the same roles. And I want to just point out, I should, we should take you there real quick. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 1, because I want to point out one other thing here, where Peter exhorts the elders among them as your fellow elder, he says, and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Now listen to what he says in verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God among you. Shepherd the flock of God among you. Now here's the point I want to make here. Oftentimes what happens today is churches will appoint bishops, or overseers, or elders, or pastors, or whatever they call them. Um, and sometimes what ends up happening is you get one or two or a few pastors who are over like a whole bunch of different churches in different places. And I want to just suggest to you that you never read about that pattern in the Bible. You never read about that pattern in the Bible. Notice the exhortation here is to shepherd the flock among you. Because if you're going to care for people, you got to be with the people you're caring for. You got to be able to protect them. You got to know them so that you can protect them and provide for them and guide them and give them what they need. And so this is important. Shepherds are to be appointed in every church because every church needs local people who are going to protect the church, who are going to provide for the church. And it's hard to do that if you're not with the church. It's very difficult. Uh, I'll just add one other thing here, and I'm not. We're not going to look at this in detail. But if you look at all the places where pastors or elders or shepherds or bishops are, are talked about in the New Testament. Um, I don't think there's any exception to this. I can't think of one. Uh, in almost every case, if not every case, usually the scripture speaks about a plurality of pastors, a plurality of elders. That is, you don't have a head pastor or a head elder who's over all the other bishops. Um, that's, not, that's not the pattern you see in scripture. What you see in scripture is a plurality of elders. Now, there's some obvious uh, wisdom in that, right? Um, think about the, 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 the dangers that come. And I realize that many churches have, have, uh, have neglected to follow this pattern. But think about the dangers that come with that if you set one man who is not Jesus over a church. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of temptation that comes with that. 
there's a lot of uh, danger in terms of where the church is going to be uh, become strong in the areas where that one man is strong, but weak in all the areas where that man is weak. Because none of us have become fully like Jesus. None of us is, is fit to serve his head. That's why when the Bible speaks about the head of the church, it's never talking about another human except Jesus. Jesus is the head of the church. And for that reason, in the scriptures, when you see elders being appointed, it's always elders plural, not elders singular um, in those churches, in the churches of Judea, in Jerusalem, in Derby, in Lystra, in Antioch, in Ephesus, in Asia Minor, in all those places we see a plurality of elders. And so the pastors are called to shepherd the flock among them. Now, there's one other thing I want to say before we um, talk about where we are, because obviously we don't yet have have not yet appointed pastors in this church. Uh, I want to point out that there's two places in the New Testament where there are specific qualifications given for the people who are going to be appointed as pastors. And that is simply to say this, that it's not like uh, anybody who wants to can can have the job. Anybody who wants to can have the role. Now, I don't want to give the impression that it's a bad thing to desire that role. Paul actually says in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. That is, if somebody has a godly, loving reason for wanting to shepherd the people of God, that's not a bad thing to desire that. Um, I think sometimes we might we might think that it is, you know, humility means like, hey, I should never want to lead in any kind of a way. Well, no, actually, um, to actually desire to care for people, if that's the way we see this role, as the Bible describes it, to actually desire to shepherd people, to help people to know the Lord. That's a good thing to want. But it's not just a desire that makes somebody qualified. And he goes on to speak about it's a fine work he desires to do, but an overseer must be above reproach the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil." He must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Now, here's what I want you to notice here. It's not just anybody who could be appointed to this role. Now, there are many valuable roles in the church of God. Elder's not the only one. Pastor's not the only one. There are many important roles in the church of God. I'll just, I would argue by, this qualifica- by these qualifications, Paul would not meet the criteria of being an elder. Paul was not married. As far as we know, Paul did not have children when he writes this. Therefore, and I think that's why you never see Paul refer to himself as a pastor in the Bible. You never see him called an elder. Um, Now, would we say, well, Paul, you know, he wasn't an elder, so he wasn't important in the work of God. And that's crazy. Of course he was important. He did, he did amazing things for God. Now, I say that to say this. Today, I think in our culture, what our culture says is if you're going to disqualify certain people from this role, then you're not equal. Like you're not treating people as if they're equals. But actually, no, there are qualifications that God set in order. And there's a reason for this, because God wants his church to grow up into him. And if we just start appointing whoever we want, oh, that guy's really good business leader. Oh, oh, that person over there, man, they're really talented. They're really a gifted speaker, you know? And we just start appointing whoever we want. 
this church could end up following a path that doesn't lead us toward God, leads us away from God. And so we got to be careful here. We need to follow these principles. So what happens in, in the case of a church that does not yet have people who fit this criteria? That does not yet have people who are desiring to serve as pastor or elder or bishop, but also um, but they don't have people who are desiring it and are qualified to do that work. And that's where the real trick comes, because there's not a lot of specific exhortations about how the church functioned and how the church was led when there was an absence of elders in the church. The implication in Scripture is as quickly as possible, while being cautious to obey the qualifications for it. The church should move towards pastors. I've been in churches sometimes where they didn't have pastors or elders and they had no desire, no like real focus, no, no attention to growing that or um, working towards that. And I want to suggest that's, that, is, that is a very harmful thing, um, can be a very harmful thing for churches. Churches should be working to follow this pattern that God has given. And whatever method that leads us towards pastors leading this church in the quickest, but also safest and most careful to be obedient to the word of God way possible is what we should do. That's what we should aim for. We should be working towards elders and pastors. But there are cases and there were cases in the New Testament where a church has just been planted. It's a new group of disciples. You don't yet have people who fit the qualification and therefore there are not yet elders. So what happens in those cases? And I want to suggest a couple of places in Scripture where we see that. What do we do while we wait or while we work to grow and, and, and produce uh, pastors in a church? And here's what I'm going to suggest. Uh, and we'll test this with some scriptures. And I'll leave you to test this uh, as well uh, with what you know about Scripture. Um, but here's what I want to suggest. Uh, the church, while we wait for pastors, the church is to be led by proven servant leaders. The church is to be led by proven servant leaders. And here's what we're going to do in the last half of this is I want to quickly show you this kingdom principle for leadership in Mark chapter 10. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, Mark chapter 10, I want to show you this kingdom principle for leadership. And then I want to talk about uh, really three options for how a church can make decisions in the absence of pastors. Um, we'll talk about what are three options. There's probably more than that. Um, but I want to talk about three of them and then we'll uh, reflect on those. And then uh, lastly, I want to look at two texts here that I think demonstrate the way churches were called to operate in the absence of elders while they were waiting or growing into having appointed elders in those churches. Um, and I'll try to show you those. So let's try to move through this uh, somewhat at a quicker pace. Um, but I want to start here with this. The church is to be led by proven servant leaders. Look with me, if you would, Mark chapter 10. And I want to start reading in verse 42. Mark chapter 10, verse 42. Listen to what Jesus says. You might recall um, that uh, this, the setting for this conversation is uh, two of the disciples came up to Jesus and said, James and John, they said, hey, Jesus, we want you to do whatever we ask. OK, great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Jesus is wiser than that. He said, no, uh, what do you want from me? What do you want me to do for you? They say, well, grant that one of us could sit at your right hand and one on your left in your glory. And Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking for. But he goes on. You see what's happening here. Notice verse 41. As soon as they ask that question, what are the other 10 doing? They're mad. They're angry. Why? 
Not because they recognize that these guys don't get it yet, that they're humble. Why are they angry? They're angry because they didn't ask the question first. They're the ones who wanted to be one and two in the kingdom, second and third, right, on, right next to Jesus. They're frustrated. Therefore, Jesus calls them all to himself in verse 42. And this is what he says to them. Listen, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. But it's not this way among you. Whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, here's what I want us to think about for a moment before we go further. What is it that drew you to this kingdom? What is it that led you to leave the kingdoms of the world, whatever kingdom you are a part of, whatever nation, whatever tribe, whatever tongue, whatever group you came out of? What is it that led you to leave that group and to come into the kingdom of God? I'm going to suggest this. Every one of us came here because we were drawn by the servant leadership of Jesus. We've never seen a leader like him. I want to say this. None of us were forced here, right? None of us were forced to come into the kingdom of God. None of us were forced. Jesus never did that, right? He never forced anybody against their will to come into his kingdom and to join him. Every one of us was drawn here. What drew us to him? It was Jesus. It was his style of leadership. It was the way he laid down his life daily and then on the cross in order to love us and in order to serve us. And I just want you to be impressed with the difference between the style of leadership that Jesus demonstrated in his life and the style of leadership and the forms of leadership that we see in the world all around us. Have you thought about that? You see, in the kingdom of God, people don't lord it over them. If anybody should have been lording it over, it was Jesus. And Jesus refused to do that. Jesus refused to say, hey, I could force you into the kingdom of God if I want to. Jesus refused to do that. Therefore, in the kingdom of God, that's not how the church is led. You don't get people who, who are either appointed to lord it over or they just self-appoint themselves to lord it over other people. That's not how it works in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, the path to greatness is service. And Jesus' example of servant leadership, why is he telling them this? He's not just telling them, say, say look at me and look at what a servant leader I am. He's saying, this is what you need to become. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, stop trying to push other people down and push yourself up. And instead, lower yourself and let God exalt you. You lay down your life. You become a sacrifice. You walk a life of service and sacrifice day by day. That's how you can become great. So notice this kingdom principle of leadership. Those who are leaders in the kingdom of God, it's not those who are self-appointed that are great. It's not those who are super charismatic that are great. It's not those who have that alpha dog personality that are great in the kingdom of God, but those who are servants. And that principle of leadership should teach every church who to follow, who should lead. Those who are, who are servant leaders following in the footsteps of Jesus. To put this more simply, the church is looking to those who look the most like Jesus. 
The church is looking to those who look like servants. And when it comes to actually churches making decisions and churches working together to actually figure out how are things going to work in the people of God, uh, I want to suggest there's at least three options for how this could work. Number one is um, I've seen churches where uh, the way the church makes decisions in the absence of pastors is uh, you have uh, it's majority led. Uh, I don't know if you've been in churches like this, but basically the idea is the church is led by the opinion of the majority. And in this case, everybody gets one equal vote, you know, Um, and everybody votes on decisions they're going to make or whatever. Um, And in this case, the new believer is given an equal vote to the believer who's proven themselves faithful and mature in Christ for decades. Everybody's equal at majority rules. This is a very uh, American model of leadership, right? American style of leadership. Um, very democratic uh, model of decision making. But it's a much more American and democratic model than it is a biblical one. And let me just point this out. Following the majority, even in the midst of God's people, can sometimes be a very unsafe way to live. Think about Numbers chapter 14. How many of the 650,000 Israelites thought it was a good idea to obey God and go to the promised land? We talked about this last week. Two, what's the percentage? All right, we're going to take a church vote here for Israel. What's the percentage of people that think it's a good idea to obey the Lord? Very small percentage, right? The majority said no. Now, I point this out to simply say this. This violates the principle that we just saw in Mark chapter 10, verses 42 to 45. That's ignored. We're not looking to the people who are servants to lead us and show us the way to go. Instead, what we're doing is we're saying everybody has an equal voice. Everybody has an equal vote. Decision making is going to be done in that way. So wherever the majority goes, even if they're going away from the Lord, that's the way the church goes. I want to suggest there's some danger in this. Uh, There's another option here um, I've seen in churches. Um, I'll call this uh, minority-led churches, minority-led churches. Sometimes what happens in a church is uh, the church says, you know what, in order for us to make a decision, every single person must agree. And if there's one person who disagrees, then we're not doing anything because that person doesn't disagree. That person disagrees, and we're not united, so therefore we can't move forward. And what happens is you get a stubborn brother or a stubborn sister who just refuses to get on board with things that need to be done to glorify God, that God has commanded in his word. And that stubborn minority, one or two people, can insist on things going their way. And what ends up happening in some cases is in the absence of elders, a man or two or maybe three who are not qualified to serve as elders will insist on being the leading men in the church, either because of seniority or because of influence. And the church just follows them when sometimes they lead even away from the Lord. This is a dangerous path, a minority-led church. Let me suggest a biblical, what I believe is a biblical alternative to this, and that is maturity-led churches. Maturity-led churches. So you're not following the majority. You're you're not following the minority. You're following the maturity in the church. Maturity-led. The church, and notice this is how this would work. The church willingly chooses to submit to the judgment of those who have proven themselves mature among the group. Notice this. The church willingly chooses to submit to those who have proven themselves mature among the group. And in so doing, the whole church is involved. Last week, we emphasized the importance of this. The whole church being involved in the work of the church. The whole church is involved in the choice to submit to such leaders. 
who mirror the Jesus that we are all aspiring to become like in every way. Notice that also, in this case, there's trust. In a minority lab, when it's just two people insisting on their own way, there's no trust in the church. There's a distrust that ends up happening. And you've seen that sometimes. Some of you have been in churches like that before, where there's a distrust. A lot of the people are, 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 are being told to follow this person, but the, the person's actually leading them away from the Lord. They don't trust them because they're not qualified. They don't fit the description of a godly leader. They're not living like a servant, and yet they're insisting, I'm a leading person in this church. And that could be a really dangerous model. There's no trust there. But if the church is maturity led, where the church is saying, these are the ones that we see who are leading us to become more like Christ. And we're going to willingly submit to them. That's a healthy environment. There's trust between the church and those leading the church because the leaders are following the servant leadership pattern that Jesus has given. They are looking like servants. They're not people who are insisting on their own way. They're not people who are self-appointed leaders. They're not people who are saying, hey, I'm, I'm the guy and you need to follow me wherever I go. These are people that the church is willingly saying we trust them because we've seen the work that they're doing and the labor that they're doing. Now, let me show you two texts in the New Testament that I think stress this principle in the absence of elders. And there is, I want to admit here, there is some uncertainty about these two churches. It's not, I cannot prove to you that these churches definitively did not have elders, but I do think there's good reason to believe that. And let me, su- let me suggest that. There are two key texts here to consider, and they're the texts that our brother read for us earlier. First Thessalonians 5, and verses 12 and 13 is where we're going to begin, if you can turn back there. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. Now, I'm, I realize it's been a couple of months since we read First Thessalonians, but I want to remind you of some things about this church. Remember that this is a church Paul came to and planted in a very short time. He spent very little time with them. And then he was quickly run out of that church um, through persecution. Acts chapter 17 is where we read about that story. He only spent a few weeks with the church. And then he's, when he writes 1 Thessalonians, he has not yet even made a return visit. So the only way that this church would have elders is if he appointed them in those few short weeks he was with them, right when he first planted the church. That's the only way that the church at Thessalonica would have elders, because, and let, or if there's some secret mission that went out. But it seems like from this text, if you read 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, and verse 17 all the way through chapter 3 and verse 13 makes very clear there that Paul really didn't know how they were doing, hadn't had anybody in contact with them. So unless somebody else had come along after him and planted elder, appointed elders there, I don't know how this church would have elders. I'll, note, I'll point out, too, um, there's no mention of elders in this letter. Like in, when Paul writes to the saints of Philippi, he greets the elders and deacons and all the church when he writes that. When he writes to this, to the church of Thessalonica, there's no mention of elders. It's just to the church of the Thessalonians in chapter one and verse one. All right. So pressing down a little bit further, though, it's at least questionable, if not probable, that the church in Thessalonica did not have elders. Um, there's no explicit mention of elders in the letter. And, and some do assume that the church had elders because of this text that we just read. Read it with me again. First Thessalonians chapter five, verses 12 and 13. Uh, and this is where I wish I could read a bunch of different translations of this and point out some things, but I'll try to explain um, the difference of opinion on how to translate this in, in, in these verses. First Thessalonians 5, verses 12 and 13. Listen to what he says. We request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you 
and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. All right, notice here in verse 12, we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you. I can't remember, Mike, did you say respect there um, in verse 12? Respect those who, uh, who, who diligently labor among you. The word literally there is know them. Know them. I think the idea, of course they know them. The, the idea is recognize them. Identify the people who are diligently laboring among you and have, and mine says there, have charge over you. Probably many of your translations say something like that over you. But here's what I want to point out about this uh, this word. The word that uh, this is the passage. Um, if it says they have charge over you, well, that sounds like there would be elders there. Um, but this word just means to stand before. And uh, as as a Bible concordance, if you read that, will point out the word to stand before it refers to the character of the person, somebody who has proven character. Uh, this word can refer to taking care of one's family in first Timothy chapter three, verse four and five. And again, in verse 12, that passage that we read earlier, um, if one doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church? That's the same word here. Um, how will he care for the church is a picture. Um, it's also uh, used to refer to devote oneself to good works. Um, Titus chapter three, verse eight. Titus chapter 3 and verse 14, there the word is translated devoting oneself to good works um, so as to take care of urgent needs. Um, this is the same word that in Romans chapter 12, you guys remember a few weeks back we were studying the, the gifts in Romans 12. Some of you were, were studying that with me. It's in that list of gifts in the church between the one who contributes and the one who does acts of mercy. Some translations there translate the one who leads with diligence um, or the one who cares for people. Um, and actually, a derivative of this word, Romans 16 and verse 2, is used to describe Phoebe, a sister who was a servant of the church and was a patroness, or, uh, or some Bible translations there translated, helper of many, including Paul himself. So let me ask you this. When the word is being used uh, in reference to, when the word is being used in reference to Phoebe, is the point here that Paul is saying that Phoebe is over him? I don't think so. I don't think that's the point. The point is that she's caring for him. She's provided for him. She's been uh, she's been a, a patroness to him in terms of she's financially supporting him. She's helping him to do the work of God. Now, the point that I'm making here is that even though some of the translations here give the idea of ruling over in First Thessalonians five and verse 12, I'm not sure that that idea is necessary um, when it comes to the, this, the point that's being made here. The word can mean to rule over. It can mean to protect, and, but and it's sometimes translated lead, but it can also be translated caring for or helping. And I think that's the idea here. The New Testament usage focuses on protecting and providing and caring for others. And so the idea that Paul is, is suggesting here, as I understand it, is he's asking the brothers to respect those who work hard among you, who care for you and the Lord, and who admonish you. That is, the people who are instruct, who are given the instruction, the people who are working diligently to serve the church, the people who are caring for the church, they are to respect them, to know them, to recognize them. Let me just say a couple other things about this. Uh, I think the idea is here that the church should identify people 
Not, not that the church should select people to be appointed some formal office. There's no mention of any office here in this text. But the church should identify those who are already engaged in the work of service in their community. And the idea is just see them for who they really are. Esteem them highly. Appreciate the work that they do and honor them for it. I don't think this passage is describing the creation of some sort of office so the church will have leaders to follow. Rather, the church is commanded simply to recognize the people who are already devoting themselves to the ministry of the kingdom of God. Now, if, if that passage in and of itself is not convincing to you, and, and it may not be, it's taken me a while to get to the point where I, I think the way I think about that. Um, but that's not the only text here. I'll just point out, though, that he does say in, in chapter 5 and in verse 13 that if you do this, he says, live in peace with one another. And, and I would suggest that the result of a church who looks at servant leaders and recognizes them, identifies them, follows them and imitates them. A church, a church that, that does that will have peace with one another. There's a peace and a unity that comes through following those who are servants of God. And we're pressing on towards maturity. All right. Turn with me, if you would. One other text where I want to see this. First uh, Corinthians chapter 16. In verses 15 to 18. First Corinthians chapter 16, verses 15 to 18. And this will be the last text we look at today. Listen to what he says to the Corinthians. All right, Corinthian church is a little bit older than the Thessalonian church when Paul writes this letter. But I would argue maybe even less mature. And again, when you read the Corinthian letters, you would think that with all the mess going on in them, if there were elders, they would be mentioned at some point in the letter. No mention of elders at all in the letter to the Corinthian church. I want you to notice in chapter 16, verse 15 to 18, we're, let's read it first. And then I want you to notice a lot of the striking parallel language between this text and the one we just read in 1 Thessalonians 5. Notice verse 15. Now I urge you, brothers, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia and that they have devoted themselves for the minist for ministry to the saints, and you also be in subjection to such, and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaeus, because you, they have supplied what was lacking on your part, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. All right, I want you to notice a couple of things here, just as we compare these two texts. First, note that both of these are written to immature churches, newly planted churches, churches with no conversation about them yet having elders. Both of these uh, exhortations come at the end of the letter, um, both in 1 Thessalonians 5 and now in 1 Corinthians 16. The exhortation comes at the end of the letter. They both start either we ask you or we urge you. Very similar language um, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and in, uh, and in 1, 1 uh, Corinthians 16 and verse 15 here. Um, also notice this, both churches are commanded to recognize these people, to know these people. You saw that in 1 Thessalonians 5. You'll see that here in verse 18. Mine says, therefore, acknowledge such, acknowledge such. That is, know them, recognize them for who they are. Um, add, adding to that, both describe people who, are, who demonstrate Christ-like service. Do you see that here? He talks about the household of Stephanus. They were the first fruits of Achaia. They were some of the first converts there, and they've devoted themselves 
for ministry to the saints. They devoted themselves to serving the saints. That's what their life has been about. So who are these people that he's talking about here? We know at least he's talking about the household of Stephanus. From the time they're converted, they're devoting themselves to the ministry of the saints. They Notice they've ministered not just to the church, but they've been ministering also to Paul. Uh, he talks about how they brought a gift to Paul to provide for his need, to provide what was lacking uh, in his needs. And let me just point out, too, it's not just Stephanus, but Stephanus's household that they're appointed to and every fellow worker in labor. In other words, anybody who embodies the pattern of Jesus service and sacrifice, his life of sacrificial service. These are the people they are to look to. Now, this could include elders. Like I said, I don't think here that the Corinthian church even had elders yet, but it could include elders. But the language is broad enough that even if it did include elders in 1 Corinthians 16, he's clearly not only talking about elders. He's talking about people who labor, who work, who minister for the saints and to the saints. So it might include elders, but it's not limited to them. Could also include women. When he talks about the household of Stephanus here, uh, I don't think that means necessarily only the males in the household as well. We know from other texts like 1 Timothy 2 that the women do not exercise authority over the gathered church, but they certainly do provide examples to follow. They certainly do provide uh, people to learn from. The same language was used already about Phoebe in Romans chapter 16. Now notice here, how is the church supposed to relate to these people? These people who are devoting themselves to the ministry of the saints. These people who are working and laboring for the ministry of the saints. How are they supposed to uh, treat these people? How are they to relate to them? This, in this text, the, the language is even stronger. Be subject to them. Be subject to them. That is, place yourself under their care. Allow them to guide you. Allow them to lead you. Allow them to show you the path that leads towards Christ. Be subject to them. Now, notice again, the church is to willingly do this. It's not something that the leaders are supposed to enforce. Even the elders in 1 Peter chapter 5, when Peter gives instructions to the elders about how they are to lead the church, he doesn't tell them, hey, you know what? Just lord it over them. Just tell them what to do. That's the way it works. No, you be an example to the flock. That's how you lead. And the same would go here. The idea is not that people are standing up and saying, I'm the mature one. I'm the servant. You guys need to follow me and do what I say. That's not the picture here. The picture here is the church is called, the whole church is called to look and to identify and to recognize people within their own assembly that look like Jesus. Now, why are we talking about this? Like, why does this even matter? Well, I think it matters for a couple of reasons. Number one, it matters because uh, we need to identify people who are among us who are leading us closer to Jesus so that we can become like them and become more and more like Jesus. That's the goal of everything we do is to be like him. Therefore, we need to see and to point out among us who are the people who, who look like Jesus, who are showing us how to serve like Jesus, how to become like Jesus. And we need to recognize them, submit to them. I'll just add to this. Um, if a church waits until it has pastors to learn to be submissive to leaders, the church is going to be in a whole lot of trouble. We should be learning to be submissive now, first to God and to God's word. We talked about last week, if a, if a leader is leading someone away from God, it's the church's responsibility to say, no, we're not going that direction. We're going to follow the Lord instead. 
But it is also true that when you have people among you who are living and looking like Jesus and serving, that the church is called to be submissive to those people and not to wait until elders are appointed. They are called to learn to be submissive to them, to follow in their footsteps, to imitate them. And I just want us to think about this. Um, there's a danger that a lot of churches get into. Um, the danger can be that, hey, you know, the guy that's up there with the microphone, that's the guy we should follow. You know, I mean, that's the danger of preaching a lesson like this, too. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just follow me. You know what? That's not the point of these passages. The point of these passages is not, hey, who's the best speaker? You know, who's been here the longest? Follow that one. Who's the oldest in the church? Follow that one. That's not the way it works in the kingdom of God. You know how you know how the church knows who to follow? We look at the ones who look like Jesus. Who are the great ones in the church? Those are the ones who've learned to become servants. They're not looking for attention. They're not looking to be in front of people. They're not looking to have authority or some sort of power or some sort of influence. Their aim is simply to love the Lord and to serve others. And they are daily with no, uh, no, no probing, no, 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 no uh, pushing, no, no, no needed prodding every day. They are daily laying down their lives for their loved ones. Those are the people the church should look to. And those are the people the church should learn from. And that's how the church is led. Until the Lord gives us and, appoint, and gives us overseers, pastors, um, and elders to lead us closer and closer to him. That's what we ought to look for. We ought to look to the people who, who look like Jesus, who serve like Jesus, and try to follow them, and try to imitate them. As they imitate Christ, we imitate them so that we can become a healthy church growing into Christ, growing up into Christ in all things. I hope that's helpful for you to reflect on and think about. I realize I've probably given you some things to think about. Maybe you haven't even considered before. Uh, and that's kind of the point of this is to provoke us to think about these things and to consider these things as a group of God's people. How, do, how are we going to work? How are we going to make decisions until the time in which uh, pastors are appointed in the church? How is this church going to work in a healthy way to ensure that we stay faithful to Christ and fruitful, therefore, in his kingdom? May God help us toward that end. Uh, if there's any concerns you have about the teaching today or any questions about it, I hope you'll reach out um, and ask those. As always, we are all open to learning, and that includes me. Um, so please do, uh, if you have questions or concerns about anything that was taught, uh, reach out. We'll talk through those and work through those together. Um, but appreciate your attention today. Let's uh, finish with a word of prayer. Our God and our Father, we come before you humbled and amazed that we're able to come and worship a God like you. There truly is no other God like you, and we are completely unworthy of coming into your presence. You are a holy God and righteous. You are perfect in every way, and we are so far from what you've called us to be. We pray, O oh God, for your forgiveness, for your cleansing. We pray, O oh God, for your your, your Holy Spirit to work in us, to transform us, to make us what you've called us to be in every way. We want, Father, we want to be a church that is filled with lights that shine into the darkness. We want to shine like stars in the sky. We want people who are in darkness to be able to come here and come to see you and to know you and to be freed from the slavery to sin and death, to be rescued from the snares of the devil. And we know, God, that that only happens if we're willing to fall, work with you by following in your footsteps, becoming servants 
as you called us to be. So we pray, O oh God, that you would help us to become servants with a heart like Jesus. Help us, Father, to deny ourselves daily, to take up our cross and follow you. And Lord, give us wisdom as a church. Um, help us in this church not to uh, prize the things that the world prizes, but to, uh, but to treasure the things that you treasure, those who are humble, those who are lowly, those who are willing to serve, those who are willing to sacrifice, those who daily lay down their lives for their brethren and for those who are lost. We love you, God, and we want to become like you in every way. So help us as a church, protect us from the evil one, guide us, help us to follow in your footsteps as we work together to fulfill your mission in this world and to bring glory to your name. In Jesus we pray. Amen.